Audi. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand, and you're listening to The Big Travel Podcast. From very humble beginnings in a slum tenement in the Scottish city of Dundee, George Galloway has risen to become one of the UK's most well-known and most controversial politicians. His self-confessed radical views have seen him banned from Canada, arrested in the dead of the night in Cairo, meeting with Saddam Hussein in Iraq, spending time with Fidel Castro in Cuba, and on first-name terms with Nelson Mandela, Benazir Bhutto and Yasser Arafat and more. The travels of gorgeous George, as he's sometimes known, are as fascinating and as intriguing as the man himself. Please welcome George Galloway. My research tells me that your travel CV is actually quite remarkable. I found that you've been banned from Canada, arrested in Cairo, deported from Egypt, having crossed the border from Gaza, met Saddam Hussein in Iraq, met Fidel Castro in Cuba, and been awarded one of the highest accolades possible in Pakistan. Now, that is quite a travel CV. Not bad for a council houseboy from Dundee. <laughs> That's true. And there's many, many more. I remember sitting in, a, in the royal palace in Jeddah, waiting for an audience with the future king, now deceased King Abdullah. And the waiting room was the size of a football stadium. The carpets were about two feet thick. There were black slaves with curved swords on their uh, on their waists and thinking, how did I end up here? How did I get here from where I came from? Are we talking statues here? Are there actually no. people standing there? Well, they, they could have been in a depiction of uh, ancient Arabia. They were all very large black men with big curved swords. And as I say, it was a waiting room, but it was the size of a football park. I did remember thinking, wow, I've come a long way from my attic in which I was born in uh, in the Irish quarter of Dundee. Now, I have heard you describe that as being born in an attic in a slum tenement in the Irish quarter of Dundee. What was that like? Describe it to me. Well, I left it before I developed memories, but uh, it was a sloping roof, one room, attic. I slept in a drawer because uh, you couldn't get a cot in there. And I've got a lot of pictures of me as a baby there. As the name suggests, it was a slum in which almost everyone was from my background, Irish immigrants, Roman Catholic and poor. But by the time I was five, I'd moved into a brand new spanking new council house, which still smelled of paint and cement with a front and back garden and a school at the bottom of the path and my father's factory that he worked in at the top of the road 
it was uh, truly transformative. You became the youngest ever chairman of the Scottish Labour Party in 1981. How did you get from that council house to politics? Well, uh, it's an amazing uh, transformation. The 70s, I started the decade in a gang, literally running the streets, and I ended the 70s literally running the city. Uh, so for one decade, at such a young age, it was amazing. But I was 26 when I became the chairman of the whole Labour Party in Scotland. And that was something to be then, more than it is now. And it's a record that will never be beaten because they'd never trust a 26-year-old now with a position like that. But there was a time I was the youngest ever everything. I was the youngest ever full-time official for the Labour Party, youngest ever chairman of the Scottish Labour Party, youngest ever constituency secretary. I became the constituency secretary in Dundee West at the age of 18. And you should have seen the then MP's face when he learned I was now his secretary. <laughs> what were your, uh, well, this is probably a bit too deep to go into because the journalist in me wants to ask more about what your policies were before we move on to travel. Oh, pretty radical. And unlike most people who were pretty radical in Labour and socialist politics at that time, my politics have remained exactly the same. Whereas most of them, I mean, many of them were to the left of me then, regarded me being in the Labour Party as a kind of sellout, but who later ended up cabinet ministers in Tony Blair's government, privatising and, and invading countries and so on. So they tiptoed across the stage, hoping not to be noticed. But uh, I stand exactly where I've always stood. And you were very young when you first started to travel. So yeah. one of your first journeys, I believe, was to Beirut, was it? Yes, it wasn't the first time I'd been out of the country, but it was the first long-term and important uh, journey that I made. I went with a group of other people, journalists, and some people who became MPs with me to Beirut in 1977. And I fell in love with the Arab world there, with the Palestinian cause there, even with a Palestinian uh, who was uh, one of our guides. So when everyone else left, I stayed on because Yasser Arafat had taken a shine to me, kind of the son he never had. And I used to have breakfast with him in, uh, in bomb shelters. Uh, he'd feed me with his hand, feed me eggs and pour me tea and uh, so on. But I fell in love with Beirut and that love affair never dimmed. I still work for a Beirut-based television company and travel regularly there. It's a fabulous country. I mean, it's a, it's a cliche, but you literally can ski in the mountains in the morning and water ski in the Mediterranean in the afternoon. It is just heaven on earth, apart from when it's hell on earth, when it's in the middle of war. It was top on my list to go to Beirut, and I've heard so many beautiful stories liking it to Paris. And yes. You know, even very cultured and, and incredibly a, a good looking and a very vibrant city. Yes. And then it kicked off again. And it's always been on my agenda to go there. But then, mm. you know, it does seem my brother went a few months ago, but it does seem you're never too far from trouble, are you? Yes, that's true. This is probably a good time to go. The war in Syria is almost over. There'll be an ongoing terrorist issue. And so you're not free of the fear of terrorism. But then neither are you in London or in Berlin. So one has to keep that in perspective, I think. But when you're walking along the Corniche, which is one of the world's finest, looking over the railings at the Mediterranean and the beach, 
and the big, beautiful buildings, some of them from the colonial period, some of them new skyscrapers, and the mountains beyond, it's pretty magical, I must say. What was Yasser Arafat like? I loved him very much. I was at his deathbed in Paris when he passed away. I still feel he's kind of looking over my shoulder now when I don't respond on something because I'm doing too many other things or because, uh, you know, I know what will happen when I do, that the deluge will, will begin again. And, you know, the reason I'm wearing a hat is because my head is scarred from when I was attacked in the street by someone who hospitalized me uh, whilst wearing uh, an Israeli army uniform, he was, and he attacked me because of my stand on Palestine. So I've, I've always got these things in my mind, but if I don't respond, I kind of feel he's sitting on my shoulder saying, why are you being silent? You've been to places where you must have felt, you know, talking about feeling vulnerable, and that the attack was on the streets of London. I think, yes, yes, outside my wife's shop in Goulburn Road, Stroke, Portobello Road, You've in broad daylight. Been to <clears throat> Iraq to meet Saddam Hussein. Yes. Now, talking about feeling, vulnerable, I always felt safe. No, I always felt safe there. In fact, Iraq before the war, before the invasion, was the safest place in the whole Middle East uh, for a foreigner, for an American, uh, to wander around uh, freely. It certainly isn't now. If you've been to Iraq, you will never forget it. It's like what they say of the Nile. If you've drunk from the Nile, uh, you'll always come back. The same is true of the Tigris and the Euphrates in Baghdad, sitting under the palm trees. A truly magical place. Describe it to me. Well, uh, Iraq is, of course, this incredible ancient civilization. Some of the Cities of Iraq are the oldest cities in the world, 12,000 years old. Samarra, for example. You've got the ziggurat at Ur. You've got uh, all the sites of the Abrahamic uh, civilization. And Abraham, of course, was walking in these places. And the Iraqi people are great friends, bad enemies. And I'm very lucky, very blessed that I became the friend of millions of Iraqis. Talking of bad enemies, Saddam Hussein, the butcher of Baghdad, as he was known, even when you went to meet him in 93, was it 94? 93 the first time and 2002 the last time. What was he like as a person to meet? Steady, not crazy. Uh, the crazy ones were in London and Washington. He told me the truth. He said he fixed me in the eye. He said, we know what you've done for Iraq. We wouldn't lie to you. We have no weapons of mass destruction. And he was telling the truth, and George Bush and Tony Blair were the ones who were lying. Iraq is now destroyed as a country. It's no longer one country. Sectarian hatred is evident and ossified, so that it will never again probably be one country called Iraq. But in the brief period that it was one country called Iraq, it achieved great things more than any other Arab country, but which is still... why they destroyed it. He still killed a lot of people, didn't he, before the yeah. whole weapons of mass uh, Yeah, uh, there were tremendous, there has always been actually for millennia, tremendous difficulty in keeping together a country which is divided on religious and sectarian lines. Saddam Hussein uh, chose to support the minorities. So the Christians, for example, were a treasured minority. I used to regularly worship in the Catholic cathedral in Baghdad, the other minorities, Yazidis, 
uh, and so on were all supported and defended by the regime. But the majority population, which is Shia Muslim, never accepted that this setup could last. They were determined, democratically, they had every right to, to be the top dogs. It's a perennial problem in the Arab world because you have so many different ethnicities, sects, and religions. Uh, Syria is a very good case in point, 23 religions in uh, Syria. To keep such a country together, especially when foreign forces nearby and farther afield are constantly working to divide and rule, it's a tough, a tough place to govern, and probably only tough people can govern it. Did you ever get to Syria? Yeah, I've been to Syria many times. First time would be in 1980, when the father of the current president was in power. He was in power for 33 years. And then his son, one-party rule is bad enough, but one-family rule is definitely a bad idea, as is being proven right now in Saudi Arabia, where the crown prince may well have been killed uh, in a coup, and they're just waiting for the right moment to announce it. So one family rule is a bad idea, one party rule is a bad idea, uh, but Syria itself is a, a magical place. I mean, Syria and Lebanon are really the same country. Uh, it's called Belad Sham. It stretches from Syria to Palestine, so right down the Levantine Mediterranean coast, and it has all of the beauty of Lebanon, and until this war had uh, many of the things that Lebanon doesn't have. They're very high-nosed, the Syrian people, very highly cultured, kind of feel they're the bee's knees, and that's reflected in the society. Women are entirely free in Syria, unlike many other Arab countries. So uh, the sexes mix. You go into a beautiful, leafy, outdoor cafe. People are drinking alcohol. I don't myself drink, but others are there drinking alcohol. Men and women who are not related to each other are sitting there. There's music in the cafes at night. And then you go to the, again, treasured Christian places in, in a, a small town called Malula, for example. People still speak Aramaic, the language of Jesus himself. And the churches there, monasteries, convents are just magical. You, you can hardly believe this still exists in the world. It's such a shame, isn't it? And what do you see for the region? I mean, nobody can predict what's going to happen, but what do you feel? Well, so I think Syria will rise again, unlike Iraq, because the vast majority of the majority population, which in this case contrasts to Iraq, is Sunni Muslim. They remained loyal to the, to the government, to the state. 80% of the army that has fought this long war were Sunni Muslims who did not listen to the siren calls of Sunni extremism, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and the rest. So uh, actually, I think that Syria will rise again. It will be perhaps even stronger as a power, as a civilization than it was before. But I knew that the Syrians would never succumb to Al-Qaeda and ISIS. The idea that their sophisticated Levantine Mediterranean culture and society could be governed by people who are more at home in the caves of the Tora Bora in Afghanistan is ridiculous. It's a misunderstanding of Muslims, of Islamic culture, to imagine that they are one thing and that 
people in Syria are going to agree to be governed like the Tora Bora in Afghanistan. This is chalk and cheese. You can't uh, compare the two. That sounds like a very positive vision. I'm the, quite positive about Syria. Syria. Let's yeah. hope that that yeah. happens sooner yeah. rather than later. You've spoken very eloquently about your love of Cuba and you've met Fidel Castro. Which Many is times, yeah. Incredible. I mean, where do we start with that? <clears throat> well, I spent hundreds of hours in the company of Fidel Castro and I wrote a small biography of his, the Fidel Castro Handbook. He's the greatest man I ever met by a long, long way. Utterly enthralling, a walking history book a man who'd fought uh, to overthrow a dictatorship in Cuba and built a revolution that continues long now after his death. A man without possessions, a man who lived in an army uniform, travelled in a jeep and lived in a house that was not his own and who uh, was so filled with anecdote that you literally could spend hundreds of hours and not get bored. I mean, I'll give you an example. One night, because one only saw him at night, about three o'clock in the morning, we were watching CNN in his office and Bill Clinton came out for a jog in a Malcolm X baseball cap. And Fidel stopped speaking and watched this. And then he said to me, you know, if you told me 30 years ago that an American president would A, go out jogging, B, would wear a Malcolm X baseball cap, I would never have believed you because Fidel was a friend of Malcolm X. It's probably too long a story, but uh, when Castro and Che Guevara and the other leaders went to New York for the first time in 1960 after the revolution, they were thrown out of their hotel in Madison Avenue and Malcolm X offered them the Teresa Hotel, famous in the Spike Lee movie of Malcolm, in Harlem. And so all these Cuban leaders went to live in Harlem, which at that time no white people ever went to. And that meant, therefore, that all the world's leaders who wanted to meet the new Cuban leadership had to come to this rundown CD hotel in Harlem to meet Castro and Guevara and so on. So there was a long stretch of limousines uh, with Khrushchev and Joe Enlai and Mrs. Gandhi, Mr. Nehru, Tito, all these great leaders of the time visited Harlem and around the hotel was Malcolm X's pork pie hats, bow ties, his nation of Islam, Keda. So he knew Malcolm X very well and Malcolm was of course for the American state a very dangerous man and yet here was the President of the United States jogging in a Malcolm X baseball cap. Something that he could have never Never visualised. Cuba's one of my favourite places as well. I love it. I love the people. I love the culture. I love the dancing. But the there is a lot of poverty and a lot of contrast there. And the people, even now, I'm assuming things are changing now that there's no Castro at the helm. But um, even now, there is still a lot of, of poverty and difficulty for the general people. In well, it depends what you how you define poverty. Every Cuban has a house, has a job, has free health care from birth until death, they will be much more likely to survive birth than they do in the United States. They will live longer than they will in the United States. They'll have absolutely free education from kindergarten to PhD level at university. They'll have free access to ballet, gymnastics, boxing, or a baseball, because they're mad for baseball in Cuba. These are all, if you like, parts of a social wage, which we don't have, never mind other poor countries, 
in Latin America or in the third world. But sure, it's not a cash economy. The dollar isn't the king there. But see how we're talking about it. Uh, when the revolution happened, Cuba was just a bordello for the mafia and the rich in the United States of America. Black people could not go into public parks or drink at the public fountains. Now, Cuba is loved by people all over the world. Its name is written in the stars. What do you see is the future now that there's no Castro at the helm? The new president will carry on the, the example of the two that went before him, both called Castro. It's a very healthy thing that leadership has passed to another family for the reasons I gave uh, earlier, but nothing uh, significant or fundamental uh, will change about Cuba. And unlike other countries, Cuba is free from the threat of US invasion because the Americans have tried that before and they know exactly what would happen. It would make the invasion of Iraq look like a tea party. A few weeks ago, I interviewed Clive Stafford-Smith, who's an anti-death penalty I know him well. He, he waterboarded me in <laughs> his like garden. Sounds like one hell of a party. He waterboarded me to, for, uh, on film so that I could see just what waterboarding uh, was like. And I promise you, you don't want to be waterboarded. No. Even no. by a kindly man like Clive Stafford-Smith, yes. who is a saint. He is. He's a very lovely man. And he was talking about Guantanamo. And I've never been near the Guantanamo border Not right, in, no. in uh, Cuba. But it sounds like a, a very strange place. They've got McDonald's and golf. They're obviously not for yeah. the inmates. For the well, quite. Uh, they, uh, they illegally, the U.S. illegally occupies this Guantanamo. They send a check every year, which the Cuban government tears up because the Cuban government every year from 1959 has demanded the U.S. leave there. And to add insult to injury, they've turned a part of Cuba into a torture camp. I don't know if you saw the Michael Moore movie. It was about the medical, comparing medical systems. The name escapes me for a second. He takes 9-11 survivors, firefighters and police officers who can't get treated in the United States because they don't have the right medical insurance. So he takes them to Guantanamo Bay and sails up in a dinghy and calls out and says, we want the same treatment for these 9-11 veterans as you're giving the evildoers inside the Guantanamo Bay prison. And of course, they're turned away and they go to Cuba proper and they're all treated entirely for free. And there's a very moving scene in which the firefighters ask after their wonderful medical treatment. Cuba has the best medical system in the whole world, bar none. They say, well, how much do we owe you? And the Cubans look at each other utterly bemused because the idea of paying for medical treatment is quite beyond their comprehension. It's beyond most of our comprehension, yep. the idea of what you have to do for medical treatment in America. It's yep. just Absolutely hideous. So. Yeah. But have you travelled quite a lot throughout the States? I have. They made me famous in the States uh, by having my Senate hearing, which I insisted on being at in 2005. Uh, the New York Post headlined it, Brit fries U.S. senators in oil, which is on my wall. And as a result of that, I became really famous in the U.S. And I've spoken north, south, east and west in almost all states of the Union. And uh, in fact, I've got a Patreon page called Windows on America, uh, patreon.com slash George Galloway, which is me speaking to the people in America. Uh, 
very important uh, country. I'm one of the few men in this country uh, with American blood in my veins because my great-grandmother, for some bizarre reason, emigrated from New York to Dundee. Uh, I don't know if she got on the wrong boat, <laughs> but that's what she did. And that's if you've so, seen so New strange. York... It's and the, long, it's the wrong well, way. With thousands were and... sailing in the opposite direction, but... Did you she, ever find out why? No, uh, it's one of my ambitions to find out why, if it can still be done. She's registered in the 1898 census as uh, living in a one room with no window with my great-grandfather, a child, and a lodger. And uh, her birthplace is New York, United States of America. That's Isn't incredible. That You've got to go on one of those. Um, yeah, who do you think who you, you, are? Think you are? Yeah, I'm waiting, I'm waiting oh, for the a, invitation. It's such a great program. I, is, hope, yeah. I hope they haven't stopped it. So talking of America, how did you get banned from Canada? To, to the rest well, of our Canadians seemed like quite sort of yes, like gentle so. people. You well, got, managed to get banned from Canada. There was a brief present. moment where the Canadian government was more Bush than Bush. So under Bush, I was traveling freely all over America and giving speeches. And then I <laughs> crossed the border and was banned from Canada because of my work on Palestine. But the Canadian court quickly overthrew it in a 60-page judicial caning, censored the Canadian government for abuse of immigration laws, and they awarded me compensation, which I promised to the Canadian anti-war movement. You weren't so lucky in Cairo, where you were actually arrested and detained overnight, was it? Yeah, not overnight. Uh, we were arrested in the dead of night and taken under arrest to the airport and deported and declared persona non grata. However, I did say to the little man who came and handed me the deportation and persona non grata notice that uh, the day was coming very soon. Uh, where I'd be more welcome in Egypt than him. <laughs> and not long afterwards, uh, Hosni Mubarak was overthrown in the Egyptian revolution. And uh, that exactly came to pass. The next time I went to Cairo, I was literally greeted by a brass band. Can you imagine? The brass band uh, saluted me and I saluted them back. You went to South Africa under apartheid. Yes. South Africa that's... now is this beautiful place that everyone visits, and obviously it's got its problems still, but back then it must have been an incredible place to Yes, live. and uh, again, virtually nobody on the left had visited and travelled widely under apartheid in South Africa. Uh, but I was there on behalf of Nelson Mandela's ANC, of which I was an activist, and it's one of the proudest moments uh, of my life when in the Guguletu township in Cape Town, I was uh, repeatedly punched in the face by a white apartheid policeman, blood flowing down my face and my shirt, who was cursing and calling me a war tourist. And now, of course, I'm, I'm a bit of a hero in Guguletu township, and he's the villain. Did you ever meet Mandela? Yes, many times. Uh, he was a picture of grace and courage and wisdom, one of the very, very greatest. The first time I met him uh, was in Parliament when he visited Parliament. And then I went to Glasgow with him because the South African consulate in Glasgow was in a place called Royal Exchange Square, which was in my Glasgow constituency. And we had, before his release from prison, changed the name of the square to Nelson Mandela Square 
forcing the apartheid South African consulate to give us its address, number one, Nelson Mandela Square. So he came to Glasgow, became a free man of the city of Glasgow, and of course visited the now free South African consulate in Nelson Mandela Square. Did he have, you just get the impression that he must have had some sort of incredible aura. Fantastic aura. And uh, there are some people, and we spoke of Fidel Castro, who was very close, of course, and played a decisive role in the victory in South Africa. After Mandela was released from prison, every country in the world, including those that had been supporting apartheid, wanted uh, Mandela to visit them. But Mandela's very first foreign visit was to Cuba. And he stood in the Revolution Square in Havana, where Che Guevara's image looks down, and held up Fidel Castro's hand and said, see how far we slaves have come. So the, the relationship between the two men was very close, and the aura of both men was really palpable. There are very few such leaders. Hugo Chavez was one, Fidel Castro Nelson Mandela. Benazir Bhutto, who was a very close friend of mine for more than 30 years, uh, was another. People who, when they come into a room, everybody looks at them and everybody stops talking amongst themselves and hopes that they will hear uh, from them. There are very few such leaders. Sorry, but Theresa May doesn't <laughs> make that company. Have any of our leaders had that? Well, the late Mr. Ben was such a man. Again, a man with a real aura, but I suspect it's been many, many decades since Britain had a prime minister of that stature. You don't Perhaps necessarily have Churchill. to like the people that have that. No, you don't. Charisma. Well, well I, 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 don't example, like, uh, I, I don't like Winston Churchill as someone from my background. I could hardly, but I do believe that if not for Winston Churchill, we'd be conducting this conversation in German. <laughs> and there isn't any doubt of the aura, uh, of the status of Winston Churchill. No, sorry, I served in Parliament under Margaret Thatcher. She's not in that league either. No, well, I, I've never met her and I, I'm not, you know, I'm naturally a left-leaning person. However, I just imagined that she must have had that sort of aura of not power, really. didn't not she? Really, oh, no, that's no, she was the sort of woman that would go into the cafeteria and snap at the waitresses. Oh, I mean, she had no grace at all. That is a shame. John Major was a very much nicer person. In fact, John Major was the nicest prime minister that I served under, and I served under many. A genuinely decent guy. It's, it, unfortunately, when I think John Major, I just think of his grey puppet, you know. Yeah, he wasn't actually like that in person. No, I'm sure, uh, in, I'm sure he in, wasn't. As, Yes, it is funny how reputations can be can be slightly ill-deserved. Um, Trump, what do you think of him? Is his uh, reputation ill-deserved? No, of course it isn't. But uh, there's two sides to Trump. I mean, I just looked at an opinion poll. I mean, Trump's going to win again. Shadow, really? uh, without any shadow of a doubt. I now, I predicted he'd win last time. I'm one of the very few who did. Uh, and I know the reasons why he won. But he has, remember, his, we kept hearing, I kept saying on my radio show, in this very building, that uh, his opinion poll ratings were the worst since, the worst ever, etc., etc. But they're now right back uh, up. Trump has the support of 40% plus in the country. And as long as those 40% plus are in the right states, uh, which they are, then he's going to win again. So we better get used to him. Did you speak out in support of his travel ban? Uh, no, I'd, what I said was that it's up to the 
people and government of the United States to decide who comes into their country. That's a matter of principle to me. I feel the same way about our own country. It's one of the reasons why I supported Brexit. And it's up to the people of the United States whether they build a wall along their border with Mexico, though they mustn't expect Mexico to pay for yeah. it. But I added the caveat, if you like, that it's an extremely provocative, incendiary, and quite ugly thing to do to ban people only on the basis of their religion. This is Ramadan just now, and Trump just announced last evening that he's going to hold a reception for Ramadan. I don't know which Muslims really? are going to come. <laughs> he'll have, he'll have to round end. them up to get them there. He's a paradoxical person. He won the presidency because of who he was not, just as much as he won it because of who he was. Brexit, how do you think that? I mean, I was uh, I was against Brexit, but it's going to happen now. And mainly because I travel so much and I really en enjoy that freedom. Visa-free Yes, I do. I think yeah. with most European countries, we'll still be traveling freely. And with those for which we'll require a visa, we would have required that visa as, as EU citizens. I have myself a house in Portugal to which I travel as often as I can. There's no way that Portugal is going to ask for visas from British citizens because they the British the population in Portugal is economically very significant. And Spain as well, where yeah. I spend most of my time. Uh, so just I'm going to get on to my last couple of questions. Um, oh, I, I was going to ask you if there's anything I've missed. However, I asked this of your wife before I interviewed you, and she said to ask you about Vimto in Ethiopia. My goodness, she's got a good memory. <laughs> and I well, Googled, this... let me just say that I Googled Ethiopia and Vimto, thinking, is it a political regime I don't know about? Is no, it someone I know? It's, it's, not, a, the, it's the, not a, a liberation drink. front. No. It's a drink. Now, I'll tell you what happened. I was very involved in the in, during the famine in the mid-80s in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, in Sudan, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Somalia, and so on. And I was traveling regularly there, which was very, very tough conditions, as you can imagine. So I flew to uh, Khartoum, then a small plane to Port Sudan. Then I traveled overnight uh, in a jeep to a place called Kasala, in which there was a refugee camp called Wad Kauli, in which 30,000 coughing, spluttering, starving, dying Ethiopians, Eritreans were literally dying. There was no electricity, virtually none. There was no shops, of course, and I was thirsty, desperate for something to eat. I hadn't eaten all day, in common with many of the people that mm. were living there, of course. And I found this little hut with one bulb working. And I thought, I'm going to head towards that hut. I was accompanied by a quite famous uh, Scottish journalist called Brian Wilson, who later became a member of parliament with me and was in Tony Blair's cabinet. So me and Brian Wilson, we head for this hut with a one electric light bulb and we discover it is indeed a cafe which has the most revolting food, cold, but we ate it, of course, but we were really in need of something to drink. And the man said, yes, look in this, one of these bucket fridges. So you lift the lid of the bucket and there, swimming in very dirty water was one bottle of Vimto. Of course, we had to have it. We fished it out of the fridge, so-called fridge. It was very warm and, of course, very dirty. So I have a vivid memory of how Brian and I 
pursed our lips to put the lips inside the bottle rather than along the lip of it. But the taste of the Vimto, when we were so thirsty, was simply divine. And I had never been a big fan of Vimto, but I was that night. Vimto was the nectar of the gods, believe me, in Ethiopia in 1985. Where do you go for fun then? It sounds like Portugal is on your Portugal, yeah. I love Portugal. I love the people. I love the place. I love the Atlantic Ocean on which, by the grace of God, we have a house. I love the cool breeze in the evenings and the warm sun in the afternoon. It's abroad, but not too abroad. So I can watch Sky News all day. Uh, I can tweet. I can do everything that I would be doing at home except looking over the Atlantic Ocean. And, uh, now that I've traveled so much, and there's almost nowhere that I haven't been, that I want to go, if you gave me a ticket to anywhere now, it would be to Faro. You know, you travel all over the world, but actually you realize that home or close to home has got a lot more to offer than you previously Indeed. Uh, well, I have uh, four children under 10. And so for me and my wife and those four children, that's our piece of heaven on earth. Plenty of room, a pool to swim in, an ocean to look at with the breeze in your hair and the sun on your face. What could be nicer? Before I ask you my last question, do you think there's anything I've missed? Any stories that you'd like to tell me about? Well, visit Dundee because it, it's become a happening place. The V&A, the Victoria and Albert Museum, no less, has opened its second branch in Dundee. And it's just been voted, uh, as well as being the place with most sunshine in Britain, by the way. It ha That's unexpected. Yeah, there are more days of sunshine in Dundee than anywhere else in Britain. At least that's what my mother and my sister told me. I hope <laughs> and it's the true. Dundee tourist board. <laughs> uh, yeah, but it has—it really has completely transformed since I left it uh, 36 years ago. And it's situated in a, a very beautiful place on the banks of the Silvery Tay and within minutes of the Scottish Highlands. It's very beautiful. You should try it. Yeah, I haven't been actually, and I will, I'll go. My my thing is that whenever I've got the opportunity to go away, I always go somewhere and know it's going to be warm, and that's the thing about you and me both, Scotland. Yeah. You, know. you and me both. The if you can't you... go somewhere warm, go to Dundee. Yes, yeah. which has a lot of sunshine, according to your mum yes, but and the, sister. It's sunshine, but it's not particularly warm. <laughs> does it have midges as well? There's a midge problem in uh, Scotland. Yeah. yeah. You're really, you're really Scotland in the it, summer yeah. is midgy season, yeah. You're really selling it. Oh, actually, just very quickly before my last question, we've got time. Do you think travel is important? I know not everyone can travel, but why is travel important? And if you can, you should. Well, my parents, God rest my father, he and my mother never left these islands. Of course, I include Ireland, it's a separate country, but these islands. They never left these islands until they were in their 50s. And I recall how they spoke about going to Venice and Florence and the near abroad for you and I, but the very exotic for them. Uh, there's no doubt that whatever age you are, travel opens your eyes, it opens your mind, and above all, it teaches you that we're all God's children. And a lot of tolerance. Are you religious then? Yes. That's interesting. My very last question is about music. If you had to choose one song, reminded you of a time or a place when you've been traveling what would that be well i'm possibly the world's greatest bob dylan fan i 
I have seen him more than 50 times. I have everything in triplicate, even the things that most Bob Dylan fans pretend never happened <laughs> in his uh, Christian fundamentalist period, for example. But my favorite is to do with travel. And it's my favorite Bob Dylan song, though it's one of the very, very few that he recorded that he didn't write. It's an old song. It's called You Belong to Me. It's best known from Natural Born Killers. And it's all about travel. It's about a man saying to his woman, you know, enjoy your time, travel the oceans in a silver plain, see the jungles when they're wet with rain. But just remember, till you're home again, you belong to me. It's a very, very beautiful song. Thank you, George Galloway. And thank you for listening to the Big Travel Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, to leave a review if you so desire, and to tune in next Tuesday for another brand new episode. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.